Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Let's do a damn show, shall we? <laughs> Welcome. I'm so glad that you are with us. Uh, we have a great one tonight. As I said earlier, um, look, in March, a Senate vote on an abortion rights bill failed. 46 to 48. Remember that? Way back through the mist of time in March of 2022. Well, today, the Senate failed to advance a sweeping abortion rights bill in the wake of uh, the leak last week of a draft Supreme Court opinion that will overturn Roe v. Wade that will criminalize abortion rights in many states. Today, Democrats failed to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. You may have heard a bit about it. People are really angry. We're going to break down everything about it for you right now. So grab a pen. You might want to jot down some details here. There was a method to this madness. This was a bill that guarantees providers' ability to perform an abortion, and it guarantees individual citizens' right to access one. And it was a move that was pretty much destined to fail from the start. And they knew it, and they had the vote anyway. And I hope to convince you why, through civil debate, why I think it was the right call, and why I think it's actually brilliant, and why I think they should do it again next week. This comes as Democratic politicians and people who care about women not going to jail for something the Bible's not against— are really, really raising the stakes and calling for legislation that will codify abortion rights. The Women's Health Protection Act would enshrine into federal law the right to access an abortion and to perform one. If it were to pass, it would supersede the state laws on the issue. Essentially, it would kill laws in 19 states that have tried to criminalize and chip away at this right. It would bar these six-week bans on abortions before many women even know they're pregnant. I've heard so many stories of women who get told in the doctor's office, hey, you're, you're just under six weeks. We have to make a choice. And they, they want to say, can I have a couple of weeks to think about it? No, you don't. It would prohibit policies like ultrasound requirements and waiting periods that make it harder to terminate a pregnancy. The legislation's text makes it really clear this is a total direct response to the more than 500 state and local laws that are chipping away at women's rights since 2011. Now, we shouldn't have to say this, but we have to say this every time. These restrictions disproportionately hurt low-income women. Rich women will be able to terminate pregnancies if they so choose. 
If you're a woman who has children, if you're a woman who doesn't have children but has means, you'll be able to see a doctor. You'll be able to travel out of state. Low-income women already are less likely to have health care coverage for abortions. Low-income women face so many more obstacles in getting alternative options if their states put in barriers. Low-income women can't leave the state. Low-income women are going to be punished for their poverty with greater poverty. If you're a woman in an abusive relationship and you find out, well, you're out of luck. If you've been raped by someone, either a stranger or someone you know, if you're a teenage girl who's been raped by your parent, there are men right now fighting to make sure that you will be forced by the government to bear your sibling baby. According to an ABC News report, black and Hispanic women in conservative states will bear an outsized impact of any abortion restrictions because they've had higher abortion rates. And if that makes you angry, well, guess what? You've just figured out how critical race theory works. No Republicans voted for this bill today. And one Democrat, wait for it, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who's been really playing coy about this, he voted against it. Bob Casey, Senator Democratic senator from Pennsylvania who said all along he's against this, he voted for the Women's Health Protection Act. Manchin has been opposed to any measures he said would expand abortion. What does that mean? It means nothing. Joe Manchin can't be trusted on anything. This would have prevented states from enacting abortion bans, and it went down 49 for 51 against. Joe Manchin voted against it. Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, both of whom claimed to support women's reproductive freedoms, both of whom were really happy to vote for Donald Trump Supreme Court nominees. Second time this year, the Senate has voted on abortion protections. No Manchin, no Collins, no Murkowski, no Republicans. 70% of Americans want Roe v. Wade upheld. They hate democracy, folks. Now, talks have already begun about about a scaled-back version of the bill that could potentially get those three to come on board, but that still means nothing. Because any legislation to protect women's rights has no chance of clearing the Senate's 60-vote threshold. And by the way, that's unconstitutional. The Constitution says the vice president will be a tiebreaker. That means 50-50. Nothing about 60 votes. Here is Vice President Kamala Harris announcing the vote tally, blocking the Women's Health Protection Act, A-1. On this vote, the yeas are 49, the nays are 51. Three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative. The motion is not agreed to. So Democrats have two real uphill battles here, maybe three, when it comes to doing something to protect women's rights. One, there's the filibuster. Number two, Manchinema. Because of the filibuster, most bills need 60 votes to pass, meaning Democrats would have to get everyone on board and 10 Republicans. That's not going to happen here. So another option would be to overturn the ahistorical filibuster, which has been the best friend white supremacy has ever had in our Senate for many years. It was literally created to stop John Quincy Adams from railing against slavery. If you get rid of the filibuster, you just need 50 member support to get rid of the filibuster on any bill. They can't do that because of Manchin and Cinema. They are against this procedural change, and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are willing to watch Roe v. Wade be taken away because they care more about the fucking filibuster than they care about women. So remember when the filibuster was changed to allow the debt ceiling to be raised with just 51 votes? Why couldn't the filibuster rule be changed to allow the passage of abortion rights by 51 votes? We used reconciliation to pass Obamacare with just 51 votes. 
So, okay, you might be saying, why did the Democrats do this? They knew it was going to fail. Well, Maisie Hirono said it pretty well, the senator from Hawaii. People in our country need to know where we all stand on the issue of protecting a woman's right to control her own body. That's it. And that's why they did it. I say they should do it every week. Every week, like the Republicans did the Obamacare repeal votes. Those were always doomed to fail, but they did it anyway. There is, there is a third option. You know, you, you can get a couple of pro-abortion rights Republican senators to join with the Democrats to overturn it. Um, but it's not going to happen. So Chuck Schumer offers a glimpse of what the future might look like in the next Republican-controlled Congress. Leader McConnell says that under a Republican Senate, a national ban of abortion is possible without Roe. Let that sink in, America. A national ban on abortion is the extreme of extremes, and it is now possible in a Republican Senate, according to Leader McConnell. Americans should listen to that. For the hard right, this has never been about states' rights. This has never been about letting Texas choose its own path while California takes another. Those arguments have now been exposed for what they are, hypocrisy. For MAGA Republicans, this has always been about making abortion illegal everywhere, about making the bans in Texas apply equally to New York and California and Minnesota and everywhere in between. Notice Schumer said MAGA Republicans. Start getting ready to hear a lot of Democrats say MAGA. It's completely related to this vote today. It is about turning out the vote. Schumer said Republicans will have two choices. They can own the destruction of women's rights or they can reverse course and work to prevent the damage. Joe Biden said today Republicans in Congress, not one of whom voted for this bill, have chosen to stand in the way of Americans' rights to make the most personal decisions about their own bodies, families, and lives. These are mostly men and some women who are deciding years of a woman's life. Look, look at it this way. Let's say you were a bone marrow match for a dying person and you're the only person on earth or a kidney match. Only your kidney will save this life. Should the government have the power to force you to give up your kidney? Should the government have power over your body, gentlemen? No. But what if it's to save a life? You're going to let someone die? That's the debate we're having here. I'm not saying that abortion doesn't take, uh, uh, take away what could eventually become a human life. But pregnancy is 12 times more dangerous to a woman's life than abortion. I'm going to say that again. And I want you to think about poor women when I say it this time. Pregnancy is 12 times more dangerous to a woman's life than having an abortion. Now, this is strategic. And voting on this will allow the Democrats to say all Republicans voted against abortion protections. It's going to help them underscore not just the Republican opposition to the issue, but to the choice you have. This vote today was all about messaging. Democrats are looking to the midterms as their main way to protect their majority and their main way to protect women's rights. And at this point, friends, and I'm not even a Democrat, but the Democrats keeping control of the Congress and women keeping control of their bodies have become the same issue. So here's Steve Scalise, who voted against fair pay for women, who has voted against everything that would ever give equality or dignity to LGBT Americans. Steve Scalise, who is a lifelong homophobe, who called himself David Duke without the baggage. 
Here's Stephen, Stephen Scalise overjoyed about the potential Supreme Court ruling. I'm not going to play all of this. He's decided to latch out to Donald Trump's party of life routine. Listen to one of the few Republicans who's willing to own it. I hope that the ruling comes out soon, and I hope it's the ruling that was leaked. I'm disappointed that there was a leak, and I'm disappointed that this White House is still encouraging people to break federal law and go and protest in front of the houses of Supreme Court justice, justices, as Jen Psaki encouraged yesterday. And they've had multiple positions on this. But if you think about, if you think about where we are, it's we're a party who defends law. life, and, and we would celebrate a ruling that allows elected leaders to defend life and debate in open public what those laws should be uh, in every state and in Washington. Clearly, we will move day one, if we get the majority, on the Born Alive Act. So states like New York can't murder a baby born outside the womb and call it abortion. It's murder. Uh, I'll I'll show you right now where Chuck Schumer is trying to bring our country. Chuck Schumer right now is bringing a bill on the Senate floor today to make America in the category of China, North Korea, and Guinea. That's where we would be. We would be in the territory of countries that allow abortion on demand as widespread as we've seen it anywhere in the world. Very few countries. So what he's doing is he's saying that they would allow abortions in the third trimester if the life of the mother was at risk, something most Republicans support as well. So this is all about the campaign and candidates are focusing on abortion rights in all the big Senate races, Nevada, Wisconsin, New Hampshire. This vote today had no chance, but it's intended to motivate Democratic voters. And and this was intended to reach swing voters who believe the Republicans approach to this is way too extreme. Look at the Democrats in the Senate who are up for reelection in swing states. You got Mark Kelly in Arizona. You got Raphael Warnock in Georgia. You got Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. Okay, they're all trying to keep their seats. This is an issue that will help all of them. Republicans are trying to keep Ron Johnson, who is arguably the dumbest man in the Senate, and Marco Rubio. And then open seats are in Ohio, North Carolina and Pennsylvania. And yeah, abortion is going to be the dominant issue for the next several months. Maggie Hassan tweeted last week, the Republican men, and yes, they're all men, running against me are all pushing an extreme anti-choice agenda. Uh, uh, Sarah Gudlewski, who's running against uh, Ron Johnson, said his past support for their abortion ban is the major issue in place. I mean, they're all talking about it. She said voters won't forget how anti-choice Republicans in the Senate, like Ron Johnson and Marco Rubio, helped bring about this crisis, or that they refuse to stand up for the constituents' freedom to make their own decisions about their families and futures. That came from Narrow, Pro-Choice America. Now, Republican candidates in swing states... Uh, they have expressed strong support for these bans. Pennsylvania, North Carolina, New Hampshire, they're trying to ban it in so many ways. They're trying to have laws in some states where you can sue women. Anyone can sue any woman for traveling out of the state. We've talked about Ohio. I'm sorry, Idaho. Under their bill, if a woman is raped and leaves the state to terminate the pregnancy, the rapist's uncle and cousin and brother can sue that woman for 20 grand a pop. Mitch McConnell made these comments about possibly having a national abortion ban if Republicans get control of both chambers of the Congress as well. This was dumb. Why? Well, there's nobody who's going to vote for a Republican that's not already going to vote for them, right? Democrats have the bigger challenge. Democrats have got to get everyone else to come out and vote. Republicans are there. They show up. They're the minority, but they're focused. They're organized. They show up. Democrats have got to corral everybody else. And they're tying all of these candidates to Mitch McConnell's 
claim about passing a national ban. And this is why you have to elect more Democrats to the Senate. Joe Scarborough said today, I'm told a clean row bill would have brought Manchin on board and given Collins and Murkowski the excuse to vote no, but that would make too much sense politically. So Democrats once again swing for the faces in a, fences in a useless gesture. Now, Joe Scarborough has been right about some things. He is not right here. It's not useless. Not at all. Because voters deserve to know who actually supports women's reproductive freedom, and they deserve to know who just says they do, like Manchin, Murkowski, and Collins, just to get the votes. Here's Mitch McConnell continuing to paint reproductive freedom as a radical left position, even though years of polling reveal it has very broad support. So, Madam President, it is chilling that anybody would write legislation like this in 2022. It's even more disturbing that 97 percent of Washington Democrats have put their names on this. But the American people need to see the American people need to see what the far left has become. (laughs) So I'm glad, glad the Senate will vote today. We will stand with the American people, stand with innocent life and block the Democrats extreme bill. So here's the deal. Over half of young women, according to a new poll, a Generation Lab flash poll that was given to Axios, over half of young women aged 18 to 29 said that even if abortion became illegal, they would get one if they had an unwanted or an unplanned pregnancy. Over half of young women aged 18 to 29 will get an abortion if they need one if it's illegal. Over half. Mitch McConnell's demographic will die off. The future does not like this. Young voters do not like this. People who work in tech companies do not like this. Young people who work on Wall Street do not like this. And even in states where abortions will remain legal, they're going to be harder to access because so many clinics are going to be flooded with patients from other states that have cracked down. You know, they say, oh, it'll still be legal in all these blue states. Well, it's still going to be harder to get one. It's going to be harder on poor women to get one because the clinics will be overflowing. Women in their 20s accounted for the majority of abortions between 2010 and 2019. And young women do vote. 56% of people polled who identified as women said they would seek out an abortion provider even if it was illegal. 34% they would have the baby in the event abortion became legal. 10% said they would try to end the pregnancy at home, whatever that means. I, I... 49% said it should be legal in all cases. 27% should it be legal in most cases. That's, uh, I think, 76%. (laughs) You want to go up against that, Republicans? Only 16% of women said it should be illegal in most cases. 8% said it should be illegal in all cases. And 46% of women responding said they have a mostly unfavorable opinion of the Supreme Court. So here is what you're going to be hearing a lot of. Ads like this. The Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee has a new ad focused on the right-wing effort to strip away women's right to choose. If Senate Republicans win in November, they will light women's rights on fire. They will make abortion illegal everywhere, punishing women, even in cases of rape, incest, or to save a mother's life. And they're coming after birth control. Unless we vote. If we protect and expand our Democratic majority in the Senate, we'll protect women's rights to make their own decisions. Fight with us. People are going to vote. Are you? 
again, more than 500 abortion restrictions have been passed by legislatures in red states in the first five months of 2022. And the second the Dobbs decision becomes official, 13 states will immediately ban abortion. Here's Kamala Harris one more time after the vote. I just uh, presided over the Women's Health Protective Act vote, and sadly, the Senate failed to stand in defense of a woman's right to make decisions about her own body. And let's be clear, the majority of the American people believe in defending a woman's right, her choice, to decide what happens to her own body. And this vote clearly suggests that the Senate is not where the majority of Americans are on this issue. It also makes clear that a priority for all who care about this issue, a priority should be to elect pro-choice leaders at the local, the state, and the federal level. Because what we are seeing around this country are extremist Republican leaders who are seeking to criminalize and punish women from making decisions about their own body. Now, I want to remind you one thing. Um, These are the senators up for re-election this year. The senators up for re-election this year who voted no today on protecting abortion rights. Boozman in Arkansas. Rubio in Florida. Crapo in Indiana. Young in Indiana. Chuck Grassley in Iowa, Moran in Kansas, Rand Paul in Kentucky, John Kennedy in Louisiana, Hoven in North Dakota, uh, Langford in Oklahoma, Tim Scott in South Carolina, John Thune in South Dakota, Mike Lee in Utah, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, and Lisa Murkowski in Arkansas. If you're in those states, it's time to get busy. And here's one more fact to consider about uh, what we heard last week in Sam Alito's leaked draft opinion for the Supreme Court. If they do this, if they go ahead and overturn Roe v. Wade, this will be the first time in American history that a personal liberty for American citizens has been taken away by the Supreme Court. We will see you at the polls. And in the words of Lando Calrissian, there are more of us. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Thanks for being with us. You know, we live in this time now when, when rational civil debate is an endangered species. And it seems like, to me, 
only in sports talk can you see people debate passionately while still not hating each other. And it does feel, I've said for a long time, like both the right and the left have one crucial thing in common. We all tend to be addicted to umbrage. And many of us go out there looking to be offended. We, we often, despite w- whatever your political affiliation is, go to news not for information but for affirmation. We've talked all about the high-tech public social media shaming and whatever cancel culture means this week and jackal mobs on Twitter. A- and yet, even within the right and the left... There are these enormous divisions that can't see eye to eye. Moderate Democrats and the left, uh, between right-wing Republicans and extreme really right-wing Republicans, this whole phenomena of fuck you for only agreeing with me on 85% of the issues. I burned a lot of brain cells trying to get Bernie fans and Hillary fans to at least be civil with each other because you don't want to marginalize your movement. We, we have this need in this post-Newt Gingrich age to dehumanize the enemy all the time because that gives our souls license to hate. But hate makes you stupid. And on this show, we've had lots of conservative guests. We had Chris Christie on this show. We had Scotty Nell Hughes. We had Trent Lott. Well, um, two noted anti-censorship activists say now that dialogue is exactly what we need, not just to make our country more polite, but to save democracy itself. And their amazing new book gives people a real toolkit, I don't exaggerate, for having meaningful dialogue with friends, with opponents, and everyone in between. Uh, Nolan Higdon is a lecturer at Merrill College in the Education Department at University of California, Santa Cruz. He's been a contributor to Truth Out and Counterpunch, uh, and he's been a source of expertise for the New York Times and the San Francisco Chronicle. Mickey Huff is the director of Project Censored and president of the nonprofit Media Freedom Foundation. Um, he's co-edited 13 editions of the project's yearbook, including most recently Project Censored's State of the Free Press with Andy Lee Roth. Andy Lee Roth was just here in February to talk about State of the Free Press. Um, he's also executive producer and host of the Project Censored show, a terrific weekly syndicated public affairs program that airs on Pacifica Radio. Now, these two gentlemen previously wrote The United States of Distraction, Media Manipulations in Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It. But again, as I said, they're longtime anti-censorship activists, and their new book is a toolkit, as I said before, to have the very painful but necessary conversations that will keep democracy alive. The book is very fair. They try to avoid both sides-ism, and it's a smart book that takes hope seriously. It's called Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. Mickey Huff and Nolan Higdon, what a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Hi. Hey, thanks for having us. It's so great to have you both. Thank you. You know, I almost want to call this make debate popular again, because it it seems like ever since the fairness doctrine was gutted, political polarization has gotten more toxic every year. And yeah, debate as we know it has disappeared from the airwaves. Yeah, that was one of the reasons we we wrote the the book. Uh, We were, you know, going on a book tour for our previous books. And, um, you know, at the end, we'd have like these Q&As. Everybody kept asking so I get your point about fake news and media, but but how do I talk to someone who I disagree with? And we kept getting this question over and over again. And at the same time, we were, we were experiencing these like scary things in like faculty meetings where faculty would say things like, well, I can't talk to so-and-so. And I thought like, you're an educator. You can't talk to someone you disagree with. Um, and so we, we were really, you know, starting to get um, sort of terrified about where our democracy was heading when people were so scared or unable to, to talk with one another. And that really was the, the genesis of why we decided to write this book was we recognize that kind of democracy hangs in the balance. Um, and if you can't talk to people you disagree with, you can't have a democracy. Yeah. 
I mean, when John Stewart went on Crossfire 25 years ago, he blew it up and got that show canceled. But I thought at least that was a place where you would see civil debate, albeit between political hacks. I love that documentary about William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal debating. And what I love about the book is that you call for a renewed appreciation of debate, where arguments and ideas are critically examined in good faith without bullshitting the other side. Yeah. And, you know, William Buckley's firing line was a classic example of that. I mean, and he was he was contentious. But, you know, he would sit down and talk with people like Noam Chomsky or Gore Vidal, and they would even sometimes name call and sometimes get a little nasty or hostile. But at the end, you know, it was always about the discussion, always about the the exchange of the ideas. I mean, despite the sometimes that it would get a little into the sandbox. But compared to today, uh, you know, that that's that's highbrow, well-behaved kind of uh, kind of television uh, versus what you see today. Unfortunately, today, as you mentioned earlier, John, it's difficult to get two people that agree on 85% of things to treat each other with respect, uh, let alone be on opposite sides of the coin. I mean, when I first moved to L.A. years ago, I did Bill Maher's old ABC show some 20 times, and I debated everybody from Jerry Falwell to David Duke. But during the commercial breaks, the producers would always hop up and say, get in there and mix it up, get in there and fight, because the goal is good TV, not civil debate. The goal is having something that gets the clicks, gets the eyeballs, gets attention. And I'm curious, what are some of the myths that you document in the book, which is very exhaustive and very thorough, but what are some of the myths about the best communication techniques? Because I think a lot of people are taught that compromise is the best way to deal with conflict. Yeah, that's um, one of the things we emphasize early on in in the book is that um, particularly Americans have this idea that conflict is abnormal and that we need to avoid conflict really harmony is abnormal. Um, conflict <laughs> is a fact of life. We're, we're always in conflict. Um, and it's really a question of how we decide to manage it. And, and we make the case in the book that we should uh, be constructive in our conflict management, not destructive. So we, we don't want to engage in censorship or name calling or, uh, you know, blocking people and things like that. We're calling for, you know, a um, dialogue that where people respect each other, they're decent, they're reciprocal, um, and they try and c- understand each other and work for an outcome that benefits each other. So not necessarily compromise, not accommodate one another, but, but actually come to some understanding that benefits all parties. And I know it sounds um, probably sort of uh, like s- spiritual lefties over here from the West Coast saying this kind of stuff, but we, we provide a lot of um, examples in the text of where activists are doing this work all, all the time. We, we you know focus on some of these like... Um, transgender activists who are canvassing to train change minds of transphobes and they're doing it through 10 minute conversations or or daryl davis who's a african-american um who's changing the minds of klansmen to leave the clan and and you know disentangle their white supremacy so we we want to be with those folks we want to see that become the norm and and that's how we kind of approach uh, conflict in the text you know another myth too is that people um People have a hard time understanding what an argument is. Too often when people say, um, I don't want to argue with you. An argument is an exchange of ideas. An argument is not the same as a fight, right? right. And those two ideas have been long conflated in U.S. culture. And it's, you know, in the last half century, it's been extraordinarily exacerbated, particularly with the uh, advent of anti-social media. Um, it's, it's, we're so hyper-partisan in each other's throats 
It's as if we don't remember that an argument is about exchanging ideas, which means not only are you constructing logically your ideas and supporting them transparently with facts that anybody can see, you don't have your own private stash, um, <laughs> but you're also listening, right? It's not just speaking for the sake of speaking and being right. It's exchanging the idea in the hope that not just that you'll maybe uh, convince someone else that what you're saying is worth hearing, but that they may build on it, they may challenge you, you may change your own mind. Um, but you know, in American political culture in particular, the changing of one's mind is like some kind of cardinal sin. Um, yeah. You know, we even have all kinds of names for it, like like opportunistic flip flopper. And um, you know, I remember back in the Kerry days, right, when Fox News would say like he's got the summer flip flops on. That's right. Um, it's like the butt of a joke when somebody intellectually is mature enough to admit, you know, I didn't know everything about that, or thank you for telling me that, or could you show me where you got that information? It's as if none of that is possible in, in the realm, particularly of cable news, so-called news. Um, and what passes for political discourse is just constant gotcha points. Yeah. And it's almost as if everyone's constantly campaigning for the next election. Facts be damned. And whatever damage is left in the wake, that's somebody else's problem to clean up. Yeah. And well, Nolan and I yeah. argue in the book that that's, that's very reckless and irresponsible. And having constructive dialogue means that we don't, we don't tolerate that kind uh, of damaging or destructive discourse. And, and we don't just lecture people about it. We model what constructive dialogue looks like. Absolutely. I mean, evolving with the times is what I do. Flip-flopping is what the other guy does. And, you know, I see this every day also. I, I see this with people on the left, people who are empathetic and educated and even correct on the facts, but they get caught up in hate. They get caught up in the attacking on social media because it feels good. To your point, I think that there are people in classrooms every day, around dinner tables every day, who are engaging in civil debate, but that doesn't get the clicks, doesn't get the eyeballs. People actually finding meetings of the mind and even not agreeing, just exchanging ideas with respect and getting along. Who wants to watch that shit? I want to see blood. But how do well-intentioned people um, who might get caught up in this sort of thing, especially in the age of Twitter, how, how do we avoid fallacious reasoning? Yeah, we, we, we have a whole chapter. Go ahead, Nolan. Yeah, I was going to say, one of the things that kind of um, that, that follows nicely what you just said there, John, um, one of the things we really try and focus on is getting people to disentangle themselves from like these partisan viewpoints. Yeah. Um, and this is why we spend so much time in the book talking about why we need to analyze media. Because um, our media system, our news media system, um, it's economic models, whether it's cable news or the subscriber model, it, it's based on producing content that appeals to people's biases. And, and it does that um, by creating caricatures of the other side and making us feel like we're on the right side of history and the characters are evil. And so we've, we've developed kind of this sensibility where all we ever want to do is just own the other side. And social yeah. media is based on basically a similar economic model, right? Where it gives you information that confirms your view and you can own the other side. And if you don't like what they're saying, you can just block them out. You don't have to actually understand them or, or listen to them. Um, so one of the things we, we argue in the text is we need to get comfortable with the idea of listening. So slowing down, listening, investigating, um, asking others, but even more so asking ourselves, what evidence do I have to back up the things I'm saying? And if you don't have evidence, you need to change your conclusion. Um, and this may oftentimes mean that you need to disagree with the party that you typically align with. Um, I'm of sure course. there's a lot of 
liberals right now who wish they had spent the last 30 or 40 years trying to codify Roe v. Wade and abortion rights into law versus trying to just destroy Republicans. Um, that would have been a lot more beneficial now. Um, and perhaps if they had been protesting the people in charge of the Democratic Party, they would have gotten that goal versus spending all their time talking rightly about the problems with the Republican Party. And so those are the ways in which these kind of fallacious thinking affect um, the political realities for so many people in the culture. So I would respectfully say that I think a lot of these liberals you speak of are, are have misplaced critiques of what Democrats have been doing for the 30 years, but I'm not sure that they've necessarily been trying just to destroy Republicans. I think they've been fighting for the same issues year after year, and I'm just trying to model what you talk about in the book, um, because I, I, I find that, you know, meaningful dialogue with people, we're at a place in history where we're not always at this point debating ideology or opinions. In many cases, we're debating facts. I, I know that half the country thinks the other half isn't capable of being reached, but at times we're debating whether the sky is blue uh, w- with folks, and, and that causes a lot of other vile responses. I'm, I'm very curious. Do you think the fairness doctrine being gutted in the 80s led us to this current age of niche news where we all just go for affirmation and not information, and even facts, cold, hard, black and white are up for debate? Well, we're in the post-fact world, right? Um, the post-truth world, as it were. The the the, the um, Oxford Dictionary phrase of the year back from 2016. Um, post-truth meaning confirmation bias, right? It's confirmation bias reality. Stephen Colbert joked about it years ago when he called it truthiness, truthiness. right? Um, and it's no joke, though. Uh, this kind of postmodern conundrum is upon us. And you're right, John. Many people just have a hard time even knowing what a fact is. Um, we can't seem to agree on what these things are. And it's very problematic. And I would say yes and no about the fairness doctrine. And that's a complicated issue, actually. But um, on the surface of it, one of the things that happened with the with the this is happening simultaneously with a lot of other factors, like the conglomeration of the press. Right. Yes. Used to be 50 corporations controlling the media after the Clinton um, and G- Gingrich 1996 Telecom Act that opened the floodgates for more and more, um, you know, uh, conglomeration. Right. And so you have fewer and fewer companies owning more of the media and local markets. Add on to that the 87 um, cancellation of the fairness doctrine, which opens up the floodgates for right wing AM radio, really. And actually, yeah. then the same year that you had the Telecom Act of 96, you've got Roger Ailes from the Reagan administration kicking off with Rupert Murdoch, Fox News, which is partisan news. And partisan news wasn't new in the United States. Go back to the founding period and look at John Adams and Tom Jefferson. You know, their newspapers almost killing each other. Um, it's not that that's new, but they really launched it in a way, in a more unregulated kind of fashion in the United States with cable. And yeah. Fox News just went red, red meat to the lions on the right. And that's all they cared about was bringing down the Clinton administration. Um, and then when when the when Bush was selected by the Supreme Court and got in in 2000, 2001, the, the coverage of the White House at Fox News changed. The clouds cleared. It was morning yeah. in America like Reagan all over again. The sun was out. The president could do no wrong. Um, and that kind of partisan reporting is um, is problematic because it. It is post-factual. Um, it, ought, it, ought, it, it deliberately ignores the, the well-intentioned points of an opponent or someone who disagrees because it's yes. all about winning. And as Nolan said earlier, it's all about owning the other side. You're right. So I do think that the fairness doctrine was, you know, the, 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 the collapse of that was negative for us because of what happened. But then so too was 
you know, the, the 96 uh, Telecom Act, and then 9-11 happened. And there was basically a whole collapse. And you mentioned politically incorrect. Well, you'll remember Bill Maher's show being canceled um, on the basis that he said something that was, while accurate, true, and arguably distasteful, um, was wildly unpopular. Right. And it was he was making a remark about the Bush administration talking about the cowardice of terrorism. And Maher said, say what you will, but someone strapping dynamite to their chest and blowing themselves up for something they believe or driving an airplane into a building. They don't sound like cowards to me. Someone driving an airplane 30,000 feet in the air and dropping bombs on children they never met. That sounds more cowardly. And Maher was, you know, quickly lost his show after that. And he wasn't alone a couple years later. Um, Donahue lost his top tiered show at MSNBC because he wouldn't toe the line and have enough pro war guests on. So this kind of bias, as you're suggesting, we did see a massive creep of it. And when 9-11 hit, even Dan Rather admitted later that that he totally failed and he was kowtowing to the president, that he was skewed by emotions. And it was a real sad day for journalism. And frankly, we've never really recovered. And you're, you're right. It's not really about ideology. It is about who's got the ball. I always thought watching Fox or MSNBC, well, real conservatives would be a lot more critical of George W. Bush and Donald Trump, and real progressives would be a lot more critical of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. But it, it seems that for so many of us, certain positions are not even debatable. You know, and I get that, that having different cultural sensitivities can make us clash, but we don't have to. But some points are just not even debatable. And it seems like this impasse we find ourselves at culturally helps politicians and it helps tech companies, but it doesn't help people and it doesn't seem to help democracy or a functioning society. No, and I think that that's a fabulous point um, worth reiterating um, because, you know, we talk about in the book, there's so much discussion right now about, you know, going after fake news or disinformation um, but it, it largely though, the solutions that are offered are trying to empower the very people who benefit from the existence of false information, disinformation at governments, uh, members of the government, political parties, and big tech. And so we're very weary of empowering those people to decide issues of disinformation when they, when they benefit from this divide and conquer strategy. Um, you know, one of the um, things we talk about in the book is that not only are we at each other's throats, right? Some recent polls show that Americans' number one fear is other Americans. Yeah. But th- this also, it, it, it stops us from being able to make any progress as a country. We, we can't even rally around like basic policies anymore that would be good for the public. And I think this was exposed in a big way during COVID. Um, you had other nations around the globe that were able to put money in people's pockets to keep them alive and sustain them. Um, they were able to, to get uh, medical care to people. We're here in the United States, you know, we had lost our manufacturing base. We had employer-based right. healthcare. So if you lost your job, you lost your healthcare. And we didn't have a, a, a government that was organized enough to be able to distribute necessary resources to the people. And I think that that speaks to this, this partisan divide, because if Trump had proposed it as a Democrat, you had to oppose it. And if Pelosi proposed it as a Republican, you had to oppose it. So there's nowhere to go. For many, that's very true. Let, let me ask you about the word censorship which has become my new favorite abused term. Um, You talk about censorship by proxy. Uh, You know, just yesterday, Elon Musk was saying that uh, I don't think it was correct to ban Donald Trump. That was a mistake because it alienated a lot of the country, and it ultimately did not result in Donald Trump not having a voice. And Elon Musk was right. Donald Trump didn't lose his free speech. He was still able to say whatever he wanted everywhere else. I've long said that Twitter banning people is a private corporation 
deciding to have certain rules they live by. If I go to 7-Eleven and I'm not wearing a shirt and shoes, they can throw me out, but I'm still free to say whatever I want in their parking lot. Uh, the word twi- censorship is thrown around a lot, and I'm just as mindful as anybody of the terror that big corporations are now controlling the marketplace of ideas. But what do you mean by censorship by proxy, and, and how scared should we be of this if someone is still free to say what they want on other platforms? It's pretty concerning because there's a handful of big tech platforms that control what now they basically captured the public square, as it were. <clears throat> YouTube's demonetization, disappearing of whole channels. They've even did they even disappeared one of our own critical media literacy conferences a couple of years ago. Uh, just memory hold it, for example. So the um, the censorship by proxy is is a is a complicated issue because it's not we're used in the United States that censorship is prohibited by the First Amendment with free press protections, which means the government through prior restraint can't tell a broadcaster or a publication outlet you can't report this. Although they have and they've done that, and we, we know more things that they've they've done, and WikiLeaks has helped expose that, and of course now they're relentlessly shooting the messenger and Julian Assange, right? Um, but censorship by proxy, these tech companies didn't start from nowhere. If you go back to the 50s, these all kind of come out of DARPA. They all come out of Pentagon funding. This is where the internet came from. This is where all companies like Google, Bill Gates technology, this is where this stuff was all incubated. This is where it was started. And in many cases, companies like Google and Facebook, in many cases, from the standpoint of the Central Intelligence Agency and the NSA, they were always aggregators and data harvesters. Everything else was just window dressing to get people to play along. That's been well documented. It's been written about by everybody from Edward Snowden to, to uh, Yasha Levine, uh, Shoshana Zuboff. I mean, this is scholar- the scholarship on this is pretty clear. But the censorship by proxy angle is something we need to watch because what you said earlier is also true. These are private companies, and because of that, they can decide rules, and they claim they're based on community standards, but watch how they play fast and loose. They don't really define them. They don't tell you what the community is. They often don't give you an opportunity to appeal, and now the digital financial services realm has gotten into it, where PayPal recently froze the accounts of uh, our allies at Mint Press News, at Consortium News. Consortium News goes back to 1995. That's Bob Perry's old site, who who uncovered Iran-Contra. You know, these are not wackadoodle sites. These are not crazy out there sites. These are independent investigative journalists that have anti-war voices, anti-imperialist voices. They're being frozen out uh, from even practicing journalism. That's what censorship by proxy does. The government didn't say to do that. They did it on their own because they don't need marching orders. YouTube is it, it disappeared RT without one marching order from the Biden administration. Roku and DirecTV took R- Russia Today off their subscription services with no memo from the Biden administration. They were just taken out by corporate America um, because they decided that you didn't need to hear uh, those other views. And that is a scary and dangerous prospect because now what we've seen on the heels of it is the Biden administration just launched through its Department of Homeland Security, their own Orwellian Ministry of Truth in the- uh, That's not what it's called. That's the, not what it's called. Information Governance Board. Right. You can't even it up. This is a huge But we don't problem. know what that is yet. But and we don't know we don't even know what that is yet. Like I've 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 all my friends are terrified of it, but I'm like it's uh just some government bureau to do a report on Russian bullshit in media. I mean, I I've got to I'm no, trying I'll to tell you hold, what it is. reserve That's my concern because it it's not called Ministry of Truth and and again, I think calling it Orwellian before we know what it is is Orwellian. So I I've just but we you do know, know, I totally get is. where you're it's going with but board. go ahead. 
we do know what it is. And if you take a look at the models from the private sector that have been doing this, where they're modeling it from, that would be like the Atlantic Council being fact checkers at Meta and Facebook. Atlantic right. Council is a PR wing of NATO. If you take a look at TikTok, Alan McLeod did this at Mint Press News, which is why groups like PayPal are after Mint Press. They show the revolving door of people from the tech sector through the from the, from the national security state through the tech sector. If you take a look at who's been brought on on totally TikTok, with you, it's a who's who of people from the defense companies, totally with the State you. Department, the CIA. I, and, and by the way, I'm so sensitive to this. I don't like calling it disinformation. I like calling it lies. But I'm wondering, you know, and I don't want to get too off track from the book because it is about debating. But but, you know, what is a way that we as a civic society could potentially have some kind of way of discerning what is a lie and what is truth. I mean, could there be some bipartisan Department of Bullshit? Could there be a, say, yellow check mark for reputable real news sources and like a blue check mark for verified people? I mean, is there any kind of path forward where there could ever be something where we're all satisfied by it? Or are we going to have to keep debating whether the sky is blue? John, I think it's a uh, that's a great a great question, a great point. And, and um, there are some some limits, obviously, on what we know about this um disinformation board and i am going to answer your question but i do want to please. just kind of throw this out there that um please i'm not, not ignoring I'm you. this is um, awesome by the way i love this conversation thank you <laughs> um there, there's obviously in a free society particularly a democracy we should know more about what our government is doing and what what this board is and and when i when i hear the um panic over the establishment of a board like this um, the first thing it makes me think of is like, well, well, why are people so afraid? What is it about the institutions of our government, our democracy, whether it be media or, or uh, members of the government or political parties that have led people to the point where they don't trust them? And I think yeah. that's really like the critical thing I would take away from the, the discourses about the disinformation board is why do we have you know, such, a, such a lack of trust anyways? Um, and then to your, to your second question, um, I would say that I, uh, and I know Mickey agrees with me on this, I have never been comfortable with empowering any institution or entity to make determinations about what is true or false same, for a public. Same. I think it, it, even if even if it's not binding, just, just the idea of Twitter leaves a color mark next to a post to tell you if it's true or false. To me, same. that's yeah. really dangerous. I, I We're advocates for a society where you have education, either formal through schooling or through community education or through your parents, um, to, to train people to be critical thinkers, to discern fact from fiction themselves. And uh, two years ago, I wrote a book called The Anatomy of Fake News on the History of Fake News. And in that book, I, I argue that, look, fake news has been around forever. We can't treat this like it's some new phenomenon and we need to you know, change every aspect of our free society and freak out. I think we need to really keep focused that democracy is a radical idea where we believe the people have the intellectual capabilities to discern fact from fiction and make good decisions. And we need to collectively work as best we can to position people to do that, not empower some shadowy organizations or boards to tell yeah. us what is true and what is false. And I think you've exactly explained why we need to have civil debate, because we're never going to have one overarching authority to tell us what's what. We're going to have to work this out together for better or worse. And as you guys make clear in the book, we can do it for better. We can. And, you know, this is why the antidote to that kind of disinformation and misinformation crisis, right, um, is is more critical thinking. And this is why we wrote this book, 
right? At the end of the United States of Distraction, the chapter, the final chapter was called Make America Think Again. Maybe it was wishful thinking, but the idea was is that we can do this, right? We have to slow down. We have to understand what the nuts and bolts of critical thinking are, what facts are. We have to get back to some basics and then we have to teach those. But because our schools have not been teaching those things for the last generation plus because yeah. of No Child Left Behind and everything else, because of the hyperpartisanship of the media and the conglomeration of the ownership of the media, and you mentioned the fairness doctrine, right? Because of those things, we haven't been modeling it and we've been heading in this direction that is, well, it's not the right direction, right? And one of the quotes we had from um, from the USOD book on how do we get here was Lao Tzu. It said, if you do not change direction, you may end up where you're heading. Well, are we there yet? You know, we have been heading here. And so part of our writing this Let's Agree to Disagree book, we started with communication because we figured, look, the first thing we need to get people doing is understanding that they can talk to each other, yes. right? Because if you can't talk to each other, you're never going to get to the argument. You're never really going to get to the, to that other stuff. So and true. then we did the rudiments of critical thinking and the nuts and bolts and best practices, right? And then we get into things like theory and history. Um, and what what is the First Amendment anyway, right? And we tack that on. And then we get into analysis of how media factor into all this. And we leave people with, again, how how can you continue this and practice it with each other? And we actually have a list of eight things called Let's Get Critical, where yes. each letter of the word critical is a I reminder the of the things from the book that we just suggest you try um, because we do know that they work. So, so in our final moments, and I, I, I also love the six principles of constructive communication. I mean, it really is a book of tools, and everyone needs to pick the book up. But, but how how do we have constructive conversations, even with people we can't stand? What's the most basic advice you would each give to our listeners? Um, I, I certainly have one. Go ahead, Nolan. <laughs> yeah, um, so some some basic things I would say are are some things not to do. I mean, I. If you're really trying to reach someone, um, I'm assuming your goal is to open their eyes up to other evidence, maybe even change their mind. Um, but you should also engage the idea that you may need to have your mind changed. Um, yes. So be open-minded, listen to folks. And if you're trying to draw them into the conversation, I wouldn't lampoon them. I wouldn't insult them. I wouldn't label them. Um, but I would give and demand respect from them. So you need to respect them as a person and meet them where they're at. But you also need to demand they respect you. You shouldn't have to put up with hate or bigotry. Um, you should demand respect and be decent um, and, and keep your eye on the large goal, right? Constructive dialogue is about, you know, coming to some conclusion where you can understand each other. It's not about owning the other side. You're not there to win. You're there to understand and hopefully be heard. Right on. And crit critical listening is something we talk about in the book. We talk about critical thinking and, you know, critique and, and these kind of things. But but oftentimes people don't take into consideration communication. A big part of communication is listening. And how do we listen? Are we just pausing until it's someone else's turn to talk? You know, until it's my turn to say the right thing? Um, or are we really listening to somebody? And Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, um, you know, writes about this in Intuition Pumps and other tools. And it's four key things. And th these are simple ideas, maybe hard to do. But um, then it says, look, attempt to re-express somebody else's idea in a way that might be better than they even expressed it to you. Yes. Show that you think you understand and let them yes. acknowledge that you're hearing, right? So smart. And that's step one. Step two, where do you agree with that? You may have wild disagreements, but is there anything in there that you can point to to say, I understand that, or I relate to that, or I can, I, I see where you're coming from there. The <laughs> it's other like couples is, counseling. Um, it's brilliant. Yeah, but the other is, is like, did I learn anything? 
right? And so admit freely, like, I didn't know that, or I was unaware of that. Could you help me understand that? Or could you show me some sources for that? I was unaware of this. And then Dennett says, only once you go through these steps with someone to build this rapport, right? Only then should you level criticism. Only then should you rebut what they're saying so that you have some foundation on which to build the dialogue. In other words, you just spent a lot more time building a bridge than a wall. And, yeah. and that's a key part of communication that some people right. often forget, or they're so in the moment or so incensed or emotionally riled that it's, it's hard for them to collect their faculties enough to purposefully engage and look guilty. All we're all guilty of this. Sure. We all we're lose all our temper. Yeah. But even guilty if you don't find any, even if you don't find any common ground, you haven't resorted to hating each other. And Absolutely. in that sense alone, that is common ground. Um, I really love what you're doing with the book. Mickey Huff uh, and Nolan Higdon are the authors. It's highly recommended. The book is, uh, um, I want to get the title exactly right, Let's Agree to Disagree, A Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical Media Literacy. I had so many questions I didn't get to, gentlemen. I'd love to have you back anytime. This platform is yours. I'd love to do this again. We'd love to come back. Thank you so much. It was a, it was a pleasure. Many and thanks appreciate what you're doing and appreciate the opportunity and appreciate the spirit of how how you you conduct your program it's uh it's we, we're real real fans man appreciate thank it you. greatly really honored thank you so much carmax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you because at carmax we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car you should love your car that's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Jessica in Oregon, thank you so much. Hey, John. Um, hearing you geek out about movies and music is my favorite kind of ear porn. I just had to get that out <laughs> Thank you. We'll get back to the degradation of the Supreme Court right now. <laughs> yes, we will. Um, I never thought in a million years, like in the span of a couple of weeks, I'd feel so touched upon by stuff happening in yeah. by the Supreme Court right now. But hearing everybody talk about, you know, I've already, you know, I, I called previously about the Roe v. Wade situation and how it's you know a death sentence to women but we're in my situation if they got pregnant but um now hearing about the fact that with the the attitude towards racial uh feelings i guess you would say um now hearing people talk about interracial marriage possibly being on the table with states rights because you know state like like you were saying yesterday about the um you know the memorial day for the confederacy in those yes. states yes um Hideous. i'm trying to i am trying trying to in my brain figure out how clarence thomas could be you know 
I'll be okay with this. And 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 he and his wife, who is an, it's an interracial marriage, just like mine. Uh, how they can quantify that and be okay with something like that happening? Well, and I can I can answer that question that. for you. It's very simple. Have you seen his wife? I have. I mean, can you imagine Clarence? Oh, Ginny, I feel terrible. I mean, we we thought this was forever, baby. We thought this was forever, but oh, I. Boy, I really hate my coworker so much today. This is this is this is the worst, baby. I I know I promise you till death do us part. It's it's really. But Clarence, you voted with him. Well, that's that's peer pressure. That's just that. Yeah, that's how that could happen. I mean, look, I don't think that will happen. But I have nothing against anyone who's terrified it will because you can't believe a thing these conservatives on the Supreme Court yeah. say. Anybody who says they don't have an opinion on Roe v. Wade, here's the spoiler: they're they're lying. They're lying to you. <laughs> It's that simple. That's what they do. <laughs> That's what they do. That's how they get power. And you know what? We're the suckers for thinking that you got to play by rules. We're the suckers. I'm I'm really honestly sick of playing by rules at this point. I don't think anybody should anymore because it's been all taken off the table. And if they're coming after, I mean, I mean, I come on, try, try to do something to my marriage, please. Yeah. I don't think they will. Um, I think that they are going to get whooped. So, look, you can't fight progress forever. It's never going to go back to being, even the worst-case scenario, thinking that you're going to turn this whole country into the handmaid's tale. They're a minority. They won't have the power to do it, and young people won't stand for it. Now, you can fight progress temporarily. I mean, let's say they do this. In our lifetimes, we will see abortion be the law of the land. If they try to, to criminalize birth control, we will see young people fix that. They will not be able to get away with this. They can't. They could do it for a little while, but not forever, because you can't stop progress. You can just slow it down and hurt a lot of people in the process. Amen. Um, by the way, before I, I, I fly off into the night, um, just so you know, you need to go see The Northman and see it in a the theater. It is so I good. Know. I know. It's so hard. I work at night. I work nights I, and I have I a child. It, I, I, it, I don't it, know how I'm going to see Doctor Strange. Oh my God, Doctor Strange is fantastic. But I will stop tell you, it. The North Northman is going to be on streaming Friday, so you'll be able to this stream it Friday. Again. No, but yeah. you just told me to see it in the theater. You just told me to see it in the I, theater. If you, can't, if you can't see it in the theater, you can still see it. I got to tell you, we have a basement now with a big TV. I just got to see, I've seen Dune three times now. I wanted to see Dune on the big screen. I wanted to see West Side Story. And I really wanted to see uh, Joel Cohen's Macbeth, which was my favorite film last year. Didn't get to see any of it. You know what the problem is in this country now? We watch so much crap on our phones, Jessica, yeah. that now watch it on the big screen means on your TV. That's how bad yeah, it is. I know. I wanted to see Dune God help on us. so bad. I wanted to feel that worm vibration. I did too. In a theater I loved and it. Knocked my hat off, but I didn't get to. Yeah, I've watched <laughs> it three times already on the small screen, which is pretty big these days. Takes up half my trailer. I got to run, Jessica. Thank you for the call. You're super nice. Call in more often. 